Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this opportunity to gather with believers of like precious faith to even have this local church to facilitate a nice warm place to meet on a cold day where we can gather and open your word and fellowship around it, hopefully encourage and exhort and edify and lift up one another as we know that the day is approaching. And pray that we would just be mindful of that, that we don't have any time to, to waste. That in a world that is diabolically opposed to you, where there are people drowning all around us, that we would be in the life saving business as we throw life jackets and man the lifeboats to present the message of hope, the salvation message that you alone are the Savior of the world, that it's your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, your work on the cross, where you took and paid the price, the debt that was owed for sinners, that can save people if they would only just believe in that or receive that free gift that you offer that they would understand that in order to do that, they have to let go of everything else that they're trusting in and put all of their trust in the salvation that you offer through the finished work of your Son. Pray that they would see how simple that is, that we would present it clearly and accurately so that they could understand it. And they would see there's nothing else. There's, neither is there salvation in any other, but there is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus, that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father apart from him, and that you come to him by he who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Pray that they would see that it's grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, and it's that simple that children can understand it, and that once they make a decision to accept what you've done for them, you will never let them go. Pray that that's the message we would proclaim and that we would have a heart for people and we would be going through our lives saying, let me tell you about my Jesus. Give us those hearts. Give us that vision for people, Lord, so that we would have compassion and love for them like you do, that you were not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. Thank you again for this time together. Pray that you give me clarity as I speak, that it would be accurate and clear. Pray for the Sunday school teachers that you'd give them wisdom as they speak. Pray that everything that is done this morning would lift you up and give you the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a new study in the book of 3 John. We've gone through 1 John, 2 John, and now we're moving into 3 John. What comes after that? Be praying about that. Something I have a number of ideas in my mind. Be praying that the Lord would just undertake and direct us to what is needed by the majority or what people are really needing to hear in terms of what kind of a series to go into or book to go into next. But for now, it's Third John. The title of this morning's sermon is No Greater Joy, No Greater Joy. And you'll see it comes straight from the text of this introduction to First John. When I was thinking about that phrase, though, no greater joy, I couldn't help but think of the context that we're going to look at this morning, which is a parent's view towards his children a parent's view towards his children. And naturally, most parents possess a deep concern or care for their children. I say normally. That, that's supposed to be the case. It's unnatural when this is not the case, as even animals show affection for their offspring. Go try to mess with a mother bear's cub and see how that goes for you. Go try to mess with basically any animal's offspring and see how that goes for you. Sometimes birds can be more vicious than even a bear. If they see you messing around with their nest, they'll dive right at your head. Who's had that happen to them? 
even if you're not trying to mess with the, the nest, you're just trying to get some wood from the woodshed and put it in the stove, you're minding your own business. Sometimes they attack you anyway. Ask me how I know. <laughs> See, we had a mother bird set up a nest right here in our woodshed here at the church last, last year. And she was not excited about me being near her little babies and would swoop right at my head. So in any event, if, off, if the offspring of animals are treated that way by their parents, obviously normally that's supposed to be the view that a parent of a child would have, a deep concern and care for them. And when you think about parental instincts, they can be applied to any meaningful relationship. When one begun, begins to see another person as under his or her care in some fashion, what I mean by that is you don't have to have kids to exhibit parental behavior or have kind of a parental instinct towards somebody. All you have to do is be living life with people in a way that somebody becomes so important to you or you have such a care or concern for them that you start to mother them a little bit or father them a little bit. Where you see them as being under your care, that God is using you in their life. Even apart from God, you can see this in the, the, nat, the normal, natural world around us too is that somebody might just kind of take somebody under their wing. And so they're, they're treating him, them like a parent, whether they have actual children or not, or whether they're their child or not. And the desire that one's child thrive in life is a fundamental attribute of a parental mindset. So when you start to think in a parental way towards people, where you see them as being under your care, or you have a deep concern for them, when you start to see people that way, then you're going to want those individuals to thrive. You're going to be concerned about their well-being. That's a part of having that kind of a view toward them. And parents of faith should assess well-being in terms of both the physical and the spiritual realm. Now, normally in the natural realm, the temporal realm, a parent looking at their child's success or having a deep concern or compassion for a child, they're primarily concerned about... How is that child doing physically in the, t- in the temporal realm? How are they doing emotionally? How are they doing financially? How are they doing relationally? That's the, the first mindset of a parent apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But when you put in the faith in Christ, a believer parent, their thought process should include or incorporate both a concern for their child's physical or temporal realm well-being and their eternal well-being, their spiritual well-being. And between the two, a child's spiritual health should be the greater concern and focus. Between the two, a child's spiritual success should produce greater joy and satisfaction than seeing the child thrive or succeed in the temporal realm. The introduction to 3 John communicates this principle. So let's take a look at that this morning. Let's start by just reading this introduction, these first four verses of 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And that's where our title comes from, No Greater Joy. But let's start here with verse 1. This is your introduction. This is your primary, like the way you would address an envelope. 
that a letter is put into in, in modern day. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've covered this fairly extensively in Second John. But it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So the elder, that's a self-designation that occurs only here and the salutation from Second John. And I explained that in my, in my opinion, again, not being, there's no way to prove it definitively, but in my opinion that this refers to the Apostle John as the author of this letter. And I covered that fairly extensively a couple of months ago in the introduction to Second John. So if you want to hear more about some of the arguments or some of the reasons for that conclusion, you can look that up on our website or through our through Sermon Audio account online and listen to that. But the elder, we brought out even then, it emphasizes his position and personal relationship with the recipient. So John refers to himself this way because there's a bit of an authoritative role to that as he was the one who was foundational or instrumental is another word you could use in the development of many of these churches. And he had invested a lot of time and care into the teaching of God's truth to these churches. Now, the churches are made up of what? Individuals. One of those individuals that he'd had an impact on and had formed a personal relationship with was Gaius. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a second. So I mentioned then that because John doesn't use his own name here, he doesn't use his own name in the gospel according to John, he doesn't use it in First or Second John either, we have to look at other arguments about determining that the elder is in fact a reference to him. But I said when we went a little bit greater detail, in, into greater detail in Second John, I, I mentioned this then and I, I want you to know this, that attributing the authorship to John is certainly secondary to recognizing the ultimate author as God. The author of God's word, when we think about Paul said, or Peter said, or John said, or Moses wrote, true, they all said and wrote those things, but only because the Spirit of God was working and speaking through them. That all Scripture is God breathed. It's inspired by God. It's breathed by God through a human instrument. So, do their personalities carry through? Do some of their stylistic differences, do some of their background come through? Yes, but all, every word, every thought, every idea inspired by God himself so that his truth could be clearly communicated to us. Would God have any interest in communicating his truth in a manner that's less effective than it could have been or less clear than it could have been? And the answer is no. Now, some of you I know are coming to passages and finding verses that are difficult to explain or understand. So is the fault in God's method of communication? And the answer would, would be to say no, because to say yes would be to say that God is fallible and God isn't fallible. So the issue isn't, can it be understood? The issue is with my understanding, with my ability to understand it. And as a finite creature seeking to understand infinite things, there are going to be times where I come to passages that are difficult, that I have to really work at. I have to pray. I have to bathe it in prayer and say, Lord, I want to know your truth. Help this to become clear to me. I have to take the time to understand the context of the Bible. How did we even get to this? What was the buildup from the beginning to end that brought us to this place in the story, this place in the chronology of what we're looking at? 
Now, if I haven't invested the time in understanding that context, I'm going to come to things that don't make sense and that I, I can't make sense of at all. Also, I do also believe that God, in a sense, as we mature in our faith and we understand that one of the ministries of God's Spirit is to give us enlightenment, to open our eyes, to illuminate our thinking. If that's one of the ministries of the Spirit of God is illumination, then the more we grow in our faith, the more our eyes will be opened, the more we'll understand. And things that used to be weighty, used to be too difficult for us to digest in time, as we grow, those things won't seem as difficult anymore. But you can't just get to that apart from the growth process. You can't skip through growing up in order to become mature. The way you become mature is you grow a little bit, a little bit, a little bit over time. We call that progressive sanctification where you're growing in your faith. But the only way you'll grow in your faith is if you keep investing time in the word of truth as you're led and directed by the spirit of truth working inside of you. And when that's true, more and more things are going to start to open up and be revealed to you. Now, the proof that that, what I just said, is biblical, Paul talks about that. He says that there's a time when you're a babe in Christ. And when you're a baby in Christ, he says you basically need to drink the milk of the Word of God. You need milk. Now, he says there's milk in the Word of God, but then he says there's also heavier things in the Word of God. And he comes to believers and he says, by now you should be more mature and you should be eating meat. Meaning you should be into the meat of the Bible, not just the basic principles, the first, the first principles he calls them. We should have moved beyond that now. But sometimes we're just content to understand that I'm saved by God's grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He promises that I can never lose that because I've been born into a family and he says he'll never let me go. He says that one day I'll go to be with him and that he's gone to prepare a place for me and that's how this is going to end, that I'm going to go to be with him. He says that he's going to never leave me or forsake me. He says he's going to provide all that I need. And that's all I need to need. That's all I need to know. I'm not going to grow any more than that. I'm not going to search any more than that. I'm not going to study any more than that. I'm not going to read any more than that. I'm not even going to come out to church anymore. Because that guy doesn't have to say, have anything new to say that I don't already know or it's more than what I want to understand even. So Paul kind of chastises those believers and he says, by now you should be teaching others. Why am I having to go back to the first principles when by now you should have grown up and be eating meat? It's time for a T-bone steak. Stop with the mushed up baby food. And we're just like, oh, I love applesauce though. Give me some more applesauce. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, applesauce is good. If it has enough sugar in it. <laughs> but how about a how about some a rack of ribs? How about something you gotta chew on a little bit to get the flavor out of it? That can be good too, right? Now if you're not a steak person, just kind of substitute something else, right? I feel like we got a little bit off track there. <laughs> the point is, the author of God's word is God himself. We don't have to overly fixate on some of these things that we can't prove definitively. Just come to a conclusion, 
be gracious about it, and move on. So then we get to the second part of this. So the elder to the beloved Gaius. Now, I want to start with this word beloved. Most of you are familiar with it, but sometimes I think we just don't really just think of the obvious meaning of this. Now, this is the same root word as the word agape. And we talk about agape love, and we, sometimes we call it this is, just, this is unique to God's love. Now, it is God's love, the way that God loves. It's the word that's used to describe God's love, but it's also the words that's used to describe authentic human love too. It's not phileo love, which is familial love. It's not eros love, which is erotic love. It's a love that is described as, and you define it with this, dearly loved and cherished, the object of one's affection. Sometimes it means preferred above all others. So deeply loved, deeply cherished, the object of one's affection. That's what the word means. And when it applies to God, of course, you add more information to that. Now you add the idea of it's, it's sacrificial love. It's selfless love. It's love that wants to promote the best interest of another without regard for personal expense. It's in the context of the Word of God, it's a love that wants to promote what's best for somebody in light of known spiritual or Christian truths. Because to love somebody, to really love somebody, would want to do what's best for them, not just in the temporal realm, but the eternal realm too. And so that's how we come up with sort of that larger definition of loving somebody in a sacrificial and selfless way. But at the core of it, it's, it's, more, it's even simpler than that. It's to cherish somebody, to have deep affection for somebody, to prefer somebody above all others. What an interesting way for a believer to start seeing other people. Now you take Christian truth and you mix it into that. If I prefer you above all others, if I truly cherish you, then I wouldn't be concerned about whether you're responding to that love. It wouldn't be based on whether you deserve to be loved in that way. I wouldn't be worried about myself as I'm investing in your well-being. Because I cherish you. I would want to relate to you in a way that would bring God glory. So biblical principles would have to be applied to that relationship. That's how John sees Gaius. One that I cherish. One that I prefer above all others. One that I have a deep affection for. In this specific context, probably not prefer above all others, but he's a way of, it's a way of saying that I have a high view of you. I care deeply for you. So that's how he greets him, beloved Gaius. Now this is a description, this word beloved, that it's a description that's frequently found in the word of God. John uses that, that phrase nine times. We'll get to that a little bit in a second. But it's found in the way that people are to, that Christians are to view one another commonly in the New Testament. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, when you look at just sheer volume, there's more written in the New Testament, Testament about a Christian's love for their fellow believers than there is about a Christian's love for the lost. Now, I'm not saying that the takeaway from that should be that a Christian should love their believer brethren more than they love the lost. I'm just saying God dedicates more information or more time or space to that concept in the New Testament than he does to our love for the lost. I think you have to have a, a love for the brethren and you should have a love for the lost. And I think you should love all people 
Similarly, in that sense that you see that apart from them enjoying a relationship with the God of the universe, their life is going to have, is going to be miserable. And so you'd have, in terms of the lost, you'd see that it's not just this life that's going to be miserable, it's all of eternity that's going to be miserable too. And so in a sense, I think one has to uh, take both of those principles and put them together and not get an imbalance either way. But it's just interesting that the, pr- the primary focus of these New Testament letters is to churches because it's called the church age, the age of grace. So as the authors address issues in the church, they're ne- necessarily focused on the interpersonal, interpersonal relationships between one believer and another believer. And that's why the topic of loving or cherishing or caring or having deep affection for one another is in a selfless and sacrificial way. It comes up over and over again. In fact, Paul uses this term 30 times to describe his feelings towards fellow believers, whether corporately or individually. You can see that by turning to 2 Timothy. I'll just show you one that's a personal way he uses this greeting. And he does this, obviously, about Timothy. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'll put it up on the screen. The rest of you just want to get some page turning. Remind yourself where 2 Timothy is. It's a short verse. Again, we could have easily skipped turning to it. But I think one of the things that's fun is we bring our Bibles to church is that we can open them and read from them. I'll admit that I've let you down in that regard to some extent because I've put a lot of the verses up on the screen. And it's easy to become a habit that you don't even look it up in your own Bible. But part of seeing if things are as they're said to be is to look at it yourself. So 2 Timothy 1.2, to Timothy, now how does he describe him? My beloved son. There's this parental relationship, this parental view that Paul has towards Timothy, just as John expresses that view towards Gaius here. Now this term is also used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus himself by the Father. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Matthew 3.17. And for those of you who are really new to your faith, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So after you get through Malachi, then you'll go to Matthew. We're looking for Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. There's many times this is recorded. Part of that is because a lot of the gospel accounts, especially the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they cover a lot of the same content. John has a lot of new content that's not covered by the other three. And so often you'll read a phrase in Matthew, you'll read the same phrase in Luke, or you'll read the same phrase in in Mark. So you can see many different times that this is recorded because of that, but Here you have Matthew 3.17. It says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Beloved, cherished, preferred above all others. That's That's probably a good way to, a good part of the definition to apply to that context. Of the Father speaking of the Son, so though they're co-equal, though they have eternally existed together, though they're indivisible and can't be separated, yet at the same time, they have different functions. They have 
different roles and responsibilities in a sense. And the father refers to Jesus as the son, and he says, it's my beloved son. And so you can see that there in reference to Jesus. It's used five times corporately in 1 John to refer to a group of believers as beloved. And then it's used four times here in 2nd. No, it's used four times in 2nd John too. So five times in 1st John, four times in 2nd John, and I guess we'll have to count how many times it ends up getting used here. But here's one, and we're going to see it used a second time in verse 2. Now, this is the only time, though, that John uses this word to describe his feelings for an individual. And I just, there's not, we don't have to dig deeper than that other than to say that it communicates a closeness and an intimacy that he must have had with Gaius. So, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. But when we get to Gaius here, who is Gaius? Now, the name Gaius was common in the Greco-Roman world of John's time. There are several men bearing this name that appear in the New Testament. One of them can be found in Acts 19.29, referring to a Macedonian who is a traveling companion of Paul and involved in a riot at Ephesus. There's another man named Gaius that's mentioned who was a man of Derby who waited to meet Paul at Troas for the trip to Jerusalem. Now that might have been the same as the first one, but it's unclear because it was such a popular name in that day. There's another one, a Corinthian, whom Paul baptized and who was his host when Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 1.14 and Romans 16.23. The one from Derby can be found in Acts 20, verse 4, if you're making notes and you want to dig into that a little bit more on your own. And then we have this use of Gaius here. So there's nothing to indicate that this Gaius is the same as any of the others, and the name was so common that it is, it is unlikely he was one of them. Now, I don't know that as any kind of a fact. That's from the studying that I did about this. He was probably a member of one of the churches in Asia Minor that John had had influence on. Obviously, he had come into contact with him. That was the focus of John's ministry. So as that influence spread during his Ephesian ministry, other churches in Asia Minor became planted and established and ministered to by John. And that's, that's what's believed this connection comes from that. Now we know a little bit more about him. His ability to support itinerant preachers indicates that he may have been relatively wealthy. He was probably a prominent leader of sorts if Paul's going to entrust him with this responsibility that we're going to see he's entrusted with in terms of providing care for his fellow believer, who was apparently a traveling speaker. We'll see that as we get deeper into the, into the book. At a minimum, though, he was certainly viewed as trustworthy by John because this is a very personal letter about providing hospitality to Demetrius. And so John has taken the time to write to him specifically, to address him specifically. And of course, there's truth that is intended for the others that are in his proximity in terms of the local church, because these letters were never truly private. They were spread, and spread amongst each other and shared with others because of the importance of what was written. And so we have it here in front of us because it wasn't intended to be private, really. He's speaking to Gaius, but it's something that was shared with and passed around 
all of these local churches. That's the pattern of how these things worked in the early church. So at least he was trustworthy to John. John had a high view of him, and we'll get into that in a second. But now we come to whom I love in truth. Now, again, I covered that extensively in 2 John 1. Turn back there to 2 John 1, and you'll see the same kind of language. So that's just one page to your left. But the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. And so because we covered that in 2 John, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But this word love here, that's the same word that's the root word for beloved that was used earlier. It comes from a translation of the word the Greek word agape. Now it's used to describe this deep affection and care that Christ has for us. We use that term of Christ's love, but it's supposed to be the kind of love that we have for each other. As I have loved you, so love one another is what Jesus says. So that's supposed to be the model that we follow in terms of how we care about each other. Now you say, whom I love, that's present tense. He's saying, I'm presently loving you. Active voice, meaning he is making a positive, volitional determination. God's not making him love Gaius. John has come to love Gaius as he looks to the Lord and responds to the Spirit's working in him. What is the fruit that the Spirit produces? The first one that's mentioned is love. Love, then joy, then peace. And you think, man, those are all the things missing from my life. (laughs) If those are the things missing from your life, it's because you're not allowing the Spirit of God to rule and direct to, pro- to produce those things in your life. It's because you're not sensitive to, enough to allowing the Lord to have His way. Because when the Spirit is directing and undertaking and producing His manner of living in you, you're going to have love, joy, and peace. Those are the first three. And man, isn't it true that so often those are the things we're desperately missing and we're searching for, we're seeking after those things? And they're, they're there, they're available. God is a God of peace. He's a God of love. He's a God of joy. That's why the kids in our church sing a song that says happiness is to know the Savior. So as you think about that, just a little bit of a side note there, that's because you have to make a choice to lift your eyes up, to look to Him. And as that's true, He will produce those things in you. Indicative mood, this is a fact. It's stated as a fact. I love you. I presently love you. I am continuous, continuing to or continuously loving you as a present state of being. And so you kind of summarize that. It would be, I'm writing what follows because I care so deeply for you. And that gives some substance then to what is said, right? Is a child a lot more likely to listen to their parent if the child is convinced that the parent loves them desperately? Yes. You, you sometimes can't see it in the moment, but a child who is convinced that the parent is for them, is on their side, is, is rooting, rooting for their success, loves them in a sacrificial and selfless way, has a deep concern and affection for them. Now when that spirit parent communicates truth or direction to that child, there's a much greater chance that that child will take heed to what the parent has to say. And then we end with, I love, but I love you in truth. Now there's two parts to this prepositional phrase in terms of meaning. What is it referring to? The phrase likely suggests a love which not only is real and sincere, so you could flip the words around and say, I truly love you, whom I truly love, meaning I'm not just lying to you or faking it. 
I actually do love you. So you could take that approach to it, and I think that is written into this prepositional phrase when you tack it on at the end there. Whom I love in truth, meaning it's real and sincere, but also I love you in a manner that's consistent with the truth that God has revealed in his Son. So I love you in the shared truth that we have about Jesus Christ and the teaching that we've had from him and the Old Testament scriptures and the apostolic teaching that's been taking place here in the early church. We're now at approximately 90 AD. And so we're a fair distance into the development of the local church at this point. So the takeaway is it's impossible to have proper Christian love apart from truth because Christ is the definition of truth and he's the source of truth. So if I'm going to love you with a Christian love, it's going to be a Christ-like love. If the Spirit of God is producing this love in me, then it's going to be the kind of love that is characterized also by God's truth because God would never produce love that isn't also wrapped up in his truth because that would be to separate out God's character, which you can't do. They're all equally present at the same time. So then we move on to verse 2. Beloved says it again. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So we have beloved repeated again. And when I saw that, I just jotted down, tell us how you really feel. You know, if you didn't get it the first time, beloved Gaius, I'm just going to use that term again. Beloved, you're my beloved. I have a deep concern and compassion for you. Now he says, beloved, I pray. I pray. And that should be the first thing that we would do if we truly have a love for somebody, is that we would be praying for them. And oftentimes we forget that step. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Pray without ceasing. The Bible has many exhortations to prayer. So pray for one another. And we have John here doing that. So the remainder of the verse then represents John's prayer for Gaius. Now this type of prayer is referred to as an intercessory prayer. And that's just, I don't know. It's of benefit maybe for you to realize that there's different kinds of prayers. There's prayers of thanksgiving. There's prayers of exaltation. There's prayers of intercession. There's prayers of petition that are made directly to God on your own behalf. Here's a prayer of intercession intercession though it's an intercessory prayer and it just consists of any request that's made to god on behalf of another person so john commends gaius by praying that his physical well-being would match his spiritual well-being so that's the the thrust of this prayer i pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul so i'm praying that your Physical well-being would match your spiritual well-being, which he regards as thriving based on what has been reported to him. So he's saying, I've, I've gotten reports that you're thriving in your faith, and my prayer for you is that your physical well-being, your health, would match or be in comparison to the same as your spiritual well-being. So I pray that you will be in both physical and spiritual. Good health is one of the ways that you could look at that. Now, This is a funny thing that I came across and I was thinking about as I was considering this particular prayer. When you're not looking to the Lord, do you want people to be praying that your physical health would be equal to or the same as your spiritual health? 
In fact, when you're not looking to the Lord, you better hope nobody is praying that your physical well-being would match your spiritual well-being. If God granted those kinds of prayers, you'd be on your way to the hospital. And it's kind of funny to think of it that way. But it says a lot about what's been reported of Gaius to John, for John to pray even this. I pray that your physical well-being would equal your spiritual well-being. Man, isn't that convicting? Think, think about that at times. Is that what you want people praying for you? Very challenging to think of it in that perspective. The other thing to take away from this, and I think it's important, though I'm going to try to be very brief on it, is this verse dismantles the prosperity gospel message. It would be really hard to stick handle your way through this verse. Because if physical prosperity was automatically tied to spiritual prosperity, then John's prayer would be unnecessary. Wrap your mind around that. The prosperity message is that if you're spiritual, God's going to bless you physically, financially. If that were automatically true, we wouldn't have this prayer recorded in the Bible because John is saying, I've heard that you're thriving spiritually. If that's what he had heard, he wouldn't have to pray for the good health of Gaius because Gaius would already be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now that's a part of a John uh, Ben Franklin quote. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I haven't found any of that to be true, but... Very interesting to think about that. So, if that's something that you've heard before or you've been tempted to believe that God blesses those that are spiritual, that is not, that is not the context of the New Testament. Now, if you want to look at a physical, temporal blessing associated with obedience in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, you could go do some reading in the Old Testament and see that God's manner of dealing with his people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, was different than the way that he deals with us in the age of grace or the church age. So, we have beloved. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now we move to verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So this verse explains the basis for John's assumption that Gaius was thriving spiritually. He didn't just make that up. It had been reported to him. John now recounts his joy at meeting people who reported or testified, seeing Gaius live out his faith in a manner that was consistent with God's truth. And of course, God's truth in the form of teaching from Jesus, teaching from apostolic teaching, the Old Testament scriptures. And so people had reported this back to John about Gaius. And it, it was the source of his abundant joy or overwhelming joy. Now, this is cause for celebration or rejoicing, as we'll see in verse 4. Why, why wouldn't this cause you joy? Why wouldn't you rejoice greatly when you heard the testimony of the testimony or the faithfulness of another a believer, that they're enjoying the Lord? As it's described here, that they're walking in the truth. When we break down you are walking, let's look at that for a second here. It refers to one's manner of living. 
So this is a phrase or description of a manner of living that we can find used often in the New Testament. I had about 10 different references. I've cut it down to two that we can look at. But there's a lot of different places that you can find that description to just to describe your overall pattern of living or manner of living. You are walking. Now, you are walking, present tense, meaning this describes his present state of affairs or state of being. Active voice, meaning that he is the one who is making a choice or a decision to live in this way. There's a positive volitional response to the Lord's leading and direction in his life. God is not forcing him to walk in a manner that's consistent with God's truth. God gave us a volition. He doesn't make us live a certain way. It's stated as a fact. Now, we'll see that the power source behind any of that, as I consistently try to bring us back to here over the pulpit, is it's got to be God who's working in us, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. It's the power of the Spirit of God that makes Christian living possible. So don't detach one from the, from the other, but at the same time, that initial decision to look to the Lord. Where are you going to fix your gaze? That's your decision alone. God isn't going to make you fix your gaze on Him. God isn't going to make you trust Him. God isn't going to make you arrange yourself in a place where you're dependent on Him to produce in and through you a manner of living that's consistent with His plan and His purpose, His will and His word in your life. He doesn't make us do that. So when Paul is saying this phrase, you are walking, God's not making Gaius do this, but He's making it possible. You see the distinction there? He's not making Gaius do it, but he's making it possible. I don't know how to, I can't explain it, I guess, better than that. Now, your manner of living can be characterized by any number of attributes. So we have you are walking, but it can be characterized then your manner of living could be described by any number of different terms. But here, the focus of John is that you're walking in truth. But let's look at a couple of others beside truth that could characterize your manner of living. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. And both of these references are in Ephesians, so there's not going to be a ton of page turning once you get there. Keep your your thumb or your bookmark here in 3 John. We'll be coming back. So we've covered truth extensively. We're talking about truth as revealed by God to man through his word in the Old Testament scriptures, through Jesus' teaching, through the apostolic teaching, through the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God working inside of believers. So we've kind of covered that extensively. But what are other attributes? He's celebrating that in in the case of Gaius here. But what are other attributes? Ephesians 5, 2. This is another way your manner of living could be characterized. This is God's goal is that it would be this way. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love. That's another way your manner of living could be characterized. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walk in love. Turn to verse 8, Ephesians 5, 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what should that mean? So you should walk as children of light. Your manner of living should be consistent with God's life. Not life and light, but I meant to say light. God's light, God's love, God's truth. You see a pattern here? 
Why? Because you're walking by means of God's Spirit. So we have another passage in the the New Testament that says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So when you're walking as directed by God's Spirit, what are the kinds of characteristics that will describe your manner of living? The same characteristics that describe God, because His Spirit is the one producing those in your life. So we'll have light and love and truth, right? And so I I hope you see that. But here, Gaius' manner of living is described as being consistent with God's truth. Now, I want you to note this. Your inward and outward realities always correspond. Gaius walked in truth externally because because he was convinced of God's truth internally. You're not going to walk in love externally. That's not going to be describe your manner of living if you're not convinced or abiding in God's love internally. Same with his light, same with the truth. The reason this was coming out of Gaius is because it had come into Gaius. It was being produced by God's Spirit inside of him. He was convinced of God's truth. He was dependent on the Spirit of truth working in his life. So then what would come out of it? A manner of living that could be celebrated by John. That it could be described as, I have overwhelming joy. I'm rejoicing in the fact that, greatly I'm rejoicing, that others have testified that you're walking in the truth. May that be true of all of us, right? And the only way that's going to be possible is by means of God's Spirit and God's Word. So there's a reason that God's Spirit is referred to living inside of us as the Spirit of truth, and there's a reason that God's Word is referred to as the Word of truth. If we want to have our manner of living be consistent with God's truth, then we're going to have to be yielded to the working of the Spirit of God inside of us, and we're going to have to be interested in God's Word. Do you want to know God's truth? Ask yourself that. Do I want to know God's truth? Has God made his truth available? Maybe we should start with that. Do I want to know God's truth? And as one of my friends says then, the question then is how badly do you want to know it? And you say, oh, real, real, real bad, real bad. Okay, so how much time are you spending reading it? Have you ever read it? Well, well, no, I guess I don't want to know it that bad. I mean, there's some limits to how bad I want to know it. Well, do you listen to it by audio in the car when you're driving? Do you speak of those things when you wake up in the morning, when you lie down, when you sit, when you walk? Well, no, I don't do any of that. Do you ever read it with your children, read it with your spouse, read it with your friends? Do you try to learn it? Do you have a memory app on your phone? Well, I got a lot of games on my phone. I got Facebook Messenger on my phone. I got all the latest news feeds on my phone. But I don't have a scripture memorizing app. I couldn't possibly learn God's word. I'm speaking to myself as I'm saying these things. I'm not trying to have you all leave here with your heads hung down. I'm just saying, is there room for improvement? Is there room for making this a greater priority than we are? How is God's truth going to come out of our lives if we're not putting any of it into our minds? We're, we're asking for, it just doesn't, it, it defies all reason and logic, and yet we get into these patterns where that's just, we come, we sit, we leave, throw this thing into the back of the car, and 
Don't open it again till we come back. We can't cover enough of this on a Sunday morning with a guy who gets off track as often as I do. For you to ever learn this from me, not, not enough of it, we're talking about thousands of pages here. This particular page I'm looking at in my Bible is 1,713. Might be a little different in yours. We're, we're just not going to get through it. We're trying to get through four verses this morning. Anyway, enough of that. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And this is where our title came from. If we were going to rephrase this, we could say (coughs) about greater joy, we could say nothing thrills me more or makes me happier. And when we see my children here, it communicates John's parental posture and feelings towards these believers in general, but Gaius specifically. He sees them as under his care. John has a father's heart for Gaius, and hearing that he is living for the Lord overwhelms him with joy in a way no other report possibly could. Now think of all the things that could have been reported about Gaius. Gaius just won the lottery. Gaius just finished work on his house. Gaius just caught a fish that was this big. Gaius finally got married. Gaius' kids are playing on the Olympic soccer team. Could John have celebrated that? Yeah, but he couldn't have said it that nothing could give me greater joy. Not if he was being not if his thinking was being affected by eternal truths, by the Spirit of God. He couldn't have said nothing could give me greater joy than to hear that information. The thing that made it possible for John to say nothing could give me greater joy than hearing this is because what he heard related to spiritual things, eternal matters. I heard that he was walking in the truth and that's why I couldn't possibly be happier. You see that in Second John 4, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And the question is, how are your children going to end up walking in truth? How are they going to end up walking in truth? Well, it's not going to be by accident. It's going to start by praying without ceasing for yourself and for your children that you could steer them in the right direction. Then it's going to involve you teaching them the truth. They're not going to walk in the truth if they never learned it. The primary place they're going to learn it is through the people who care about them, have decided that this is somebody that I have a care or concern for. Again, even if it's not your own children, I've taken on this feeling of having sort of a personal concern for the well-being. They're under my care, in a sense. I have a personal care for that person. Now, they're only going to learn it by you teaching it to them. You see this here in Ephesians 6, 4. You can see it in the Proverbs too. Train a child up in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it, right? Now, Ephesians 6, 4, and you fathers... Instead of provoking your children to wrath, which is what comes naturally, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. How about that instead? Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That's how they'll walk in truth one day, is because you've taught them the truth. The other thing is to be a model for truth. Be an example for them. That's how they're going to 
end up walking in truth. That's how you're going to be able to rejoice greatly one day. At least it provides the potential for that. There's no, this isn't like a sure thing because they have to choose for themselves these things too. But this is how you set them up for success. You model the truth. You teach them the truth. You pray about the truth. Teach them the truth. Model the truth for them. You can see that in 1 Timothy here. Now, this is the principle, not the text. This is written to Timothy as a spiritual leader. But a spiritual leader has a kind of a parental flavor or concern for people. So it's very applicable, even it's not, though it's not a direct application. But you're the spiritual leaders in your home, just like a pastor is a spiritual leader in a church. So take this to heart. It's a, almost a direct application, but it's not the exact context. He says this, Paul says this to Timothy, be an example to the believers in the word. See how the word of truth is in there too, along with being an example? Now, what are some of the ways that you'll be an example or could be an example? Model the truth. So we have in conduct, in love, in spirit. Who are you depending on? Who are you teaching them to depend on? In faith. Are you walking by faith or walking by sight? They'll see that. In purity. Are you choosing God's truth or are you chasing after what your flesh wants? Now, how long should you be doing that? Till I come. Give attention to reading. Now, he's telling, he's telling uh, Timothy this. Paul is saying, till I come to you, be focused on these things. He's probably going to follow up with him. He's probably going to ask him about, what have you learned lately? What have you learned recently? What have you read recently? But the way that you model truth is you give attention to reading. Reading what? The news? No, give attention to reading the Word of God. To exhortation, what's that? teaching, explaining it to your kids, to doctrine. Doctrine are the principles that come from the text of Scripture. Model that for them. So we have no greater joy as our title this morning. John was not satisfied with his children merely being saved. He wanted them to grow and mature in their faith and live in a manner consistent with their position in Christ. That's why it provi- he could say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. They're living life in dependence on the Spirit of God to direct in their lives. That's what the abundant life is about. I didn't come just that you'd have life, but that you'd have it to the fullest. You'd have it abundantly. That's what, that's what the mindset is there as you're thinking about John's interest in these fellow believers that he's taken this paternal role in their lives. This should be every Christian parent's greatest desire. Now the question is, is it yours? Is it yours? Is your greatest joy going to be to hear that your children are walking in the truth? Or is your greatest joy going to be that they scored the game-winning basket? Is your greatest joy going to be that they managed to get through high school without dropping out? Is your greatest joy going to be that they get a good job and they have a bunch of kids. What's the greatest, what should the greatest joy be? To see that your children are walking in truth. And it's unlikely to become their desire or their greatest joy if it's not even yours. Does seeing other believers walk in truth encourage you? Does it bring you joy? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth, but as I see other people just trusting the Lord, stepping out by faith, enjoying Him, serving Him, it brings me great joy. I hope it brings you great joy too. 
And the question is, are you walking in truth? You can be. You can be walking in truth if you shift your gaze to him. If you allow the Lord to transform through his strength your thinking. Once your thinking is right, then your manner of living is going to be consistent with God's truth as a result of your occupation with him. So are you occupied with Jesus Christ? Are you occupied with his word? Are you willing to let him lead and direct in your life? We should all be praying about those things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for word. Thank you for this time that we could spend together. Pray that these truths wouldn't go in one ear and out the other ear. Pray that we could meditate on them and we could consider them as we go about our days. Pray that we would want to walk in your truth. Be an example to those around us so that they could see your truth and that they could come to place their faith in your finished work on their behalf, for starters, and then grow in their faith after that. Pray that we would see that we cannot do anything apart from you, that we can't force this out mechanically, that we can't even force ourselves to read your word consistently mechanically. Pray that we would start by praying that you would give us your thinking, that you would give us your heart, that we would keep our eyes on you so that you would then just work in us so that we would want to be reading your truth, that we would want to include you in our lives, that we would want to make decisions as directed by you. Thank you for these things that you've shared with us in your word. Pray that we would place a high value on them. In Jesus' name, amen.